1: Good morning. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams. And we have special guests today, Mr. Ronnie Schneider, who is the manager of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And he's here today to join us to talk about his new book, Out of Our Heads The Rolling Stones, The Beatles, and Me, with Proof of Truth. Welcome, Ronnie. Hello. Thank it's you. Nice for- to be here. This is great. This is a real treat, and I really appreciate you taking time out to come all the way out to Malibu on this nice sunny day to join us and talk about your amazing life and this incredible uh, memoir, so to speak, that you've put together. So tell us, you know, you, you were part and parcel of everything that happened in the Stone's and, and everything that they did. And this book is so incredible. If you if you want to know the history from the inside out, definitely go ahead and Grab a copy of this book, but let's let's first start where people can get it because I know people <laughs>
2: want to know that right away. Well, it's on Amazon. It's on all the online uh, you know, book selling sources, as well as in LA. It's in Book Soup, and it's out at uh, Diesel Books, also out in Brentwood. That's the only physical bookstores. But you can order it at your bookstore. They they can get it. It's you know distributed all through the world.
1: I, you are technically an accountant by trade, and you got into this by working for your uncle. Tell us a little bit about that story that, that mm-hmm. took you into this amazing journey that defined your life.
2: <laughs> well, when I was getting ready to decide what I wanted to do for a career, my mother said, you know, my brother's an accountant, and he's in New York. You could always be an accountant. And since I was good with numbers and all that, I thought about it, and I said, all right. So I started doing accounting and bookkeeping, and my uncle said, okay, after your second year in college, Come up and see if you really like the business. And I had no idea what it was. I'm still studying accounting and bookkeeping, which is basically numbers and you know people imagine you as very boring, but that was it.
1: Well you didn't have a boring life, that's for sure. You took your accounting <laughs> to the most the most incredible excursion across the world, not only with one iconic band, but two. How did that work out? You were you worked with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. How did it come to pass that you worked with both of them?
2: Well, my uncle had went after the Beatles after we had the Stones. He was the one originally managing them. Then he went after the Beatles, and he got the Beatles. It was all personalities. So that's why at the same time when he got them, I was working with him, and I went to Apple Records and did all the accounting there, as well as hanging out with the guys because he always wanted to give support. So I would hang out with John and George and Ringo. I never got to hang out with Paul all because we were kind of enemies due to the fact that he wanted his in-laws to be the people representing the Beatles. Did you ever actually heal that rift? Uh, No. Uh, What happens is when I came back afterwards, because they were, well, the breakup had nothing so much to do with the fact that it was, they had to break up the corporate structure, but that segued into the fact that the group was breaking up because they just weren't getting along any longer like any group of guys. Meanwhile, you still see the stones out there all this time. It was a little difference between the relationships.
1: Well, how did it actually begin? At what point did you enter into the Beatles' relationship?
2: Well, when in, excuse me, January 68, roughly, my uncle decided, well, he was going to sign the Beatles, and he was having a meeting with John and Yoko, and he was going to meet with them in the Dorchester Hotel, so I was actually waiting, we were waiting in the suite below, he was up in the suite with uh, John and Yoko, he made this whole big deal about giving them organic, and and, um, I think they were eating the microbiotic diets at the time, whatever it was, he was really going to get them the proper food, and I remember he planned, and the first time he comes downstairs to us, he says, oh, guess what? They'll eat anything after all the planning. He didn't have to. So then he ended up getting signed, and then John brought in George and Ringo, and they all signed an agreement with my uncle. That's how he got the Beatles. And then Paul basically was still holding out for being managed by the Eastmans, his in-laws.
1: What was it like the first day that you met them? No,
2: Well, the first day I went into the office, all the people in the office looked at me strangely because they figured I was mafia. Then they told me later. So then from there, I was sent out to meet John Lennon for the first time. And I happen to be lucky because I don't have the kind of gene that worships people. I'm not a guy who reads. You're the <laughs> accountant gene. <laughs> I'm the accounting gene, not the, oh, God, look at the celebrity gene. So, you know, to me, it's the numbers. I don't care about anything else, you know, as long as you have a pulse. So they, the... Uh, <laughs> the end result is I go to meet John and he's looking at an estate outside London and we drive about an hour and a half I drive out with the company car he's already out there with Yoko and I meet them and we walk around and it's quite nice and they're talking about whether they want to have horses you know what they can do with the lakes, how pretty the property is and all this and then it's time to go back to the office so I turn around and start to walk towards my car and they go off towards theirs and all of a sudden I hear do I stink and I'm like (laughs) Excuse me? And it's John screaming out to me, Do I stink, Ron? And no, you don't stink. Well, why don't you ride with us? So I got in the car with John and Yoko and just... For the ride, it was just enthralling with all of the ideas and suggestions John had. He was so amazingly creative, and Yoko would sit there calmly and listen to all his ideas and try and put something forward, but he didn't listen all the time. He just did his own thing. John was an individual, so for those people that think that Yoko controlled him, no, that never happened.
1: Yeah, you said that in the book, that, that he yeah. would actually tell her to shut up at times and, and yeah. you know let her kind of have her her say, but her place as well in his creativity
2: that was it it's like creative people he had something in his mind so he'd just actually try and stifle any kind of somebody butting in and so the end result was I noticed that that was the case it was embarrassing at times but it was the way he told her look I'm making a point don't jump in so I never could believe that you know she controlled him She, they were in love and it was great to see that and that love I mean right now I think of uh, Give Peace a Chance and all the other stuff they were doing then everybody can reflect back on that and see you know this idea wasn't new
1: Yeah, well, we need that idea again today. It turns out that their impact is still with us today. Does that ever ruminate in you? Do you think about that? You were part of this that, Literally changed the face of rock and roll in history in both, with both bands.
2: Well, the, the thing that I did was a little bit more business structured. The, the bands changed it all. I mean, to me, the Beatles, you know, the 60s, 60, 69 changed the world, I think, the way it was. When the Beatles went off to the Maharishi and they changed their clothes and long hair. I think while a cell phone has changed this generation, I think long hair changed ours. We didn't have the technology, actually, you no, know, we could cut their hair, so that was about
1: it. Did you ever go on those, those trips with them?
2: We, oh, no, no, um, I think actually the end, when the Stones, everybody who asked me, you know, what happened at the end of the Stones in 72 when they went off to France, I stayed away at that time because I sensed that that would just take me into a dangerous place and with what, the way that the drugs were going in those days, that would have killed me for sure.
0: Yeah.
1: So things worked out fine. What was your pinnacle moment with the Beatles?
2: I don't do pinnacle moments, because I look at it all like it's all good. You know, so the, the, the moments of just the thing, the fact that I can remember these things, that the fact that I can remember George telling me this great story about his uh, analogy of life, whereby you could he drew a line on top of a piece of paper and said, Ron, this is the top of the ocean. And then he drew a line on the bottom and said, this is the bottom of the ocean, this is the sand. And then he drew a little boat and a little stick figure in it. And he said, now, he also drew a sunset in the the corner of the paper. He said, now you can sit in this boat and float out into your sunset, and that could be your life. Just nice and peaceful, floating on the top of the ocean. Or you jump out of the boat, swim down to the bottom of the ocean, and pick up a grain of sand. You swim up, put the grain of sand in your boat, and do that over and over again, each time meaning you're getting experiences in life. You just don't sit calmly by, go out and experience life, so when your sunset comes, you've got a full boat of experiences.
1: That's beautiful, beautiful. Now, did you take that wisdom and use it?
2: Yeah, I was going to actually call my book, originally I was going to call it Sharing My Grains of Sand, but then I figured, you know, people are sharing, but what the hell does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Is this a gardener's book or a forest guide? So unless I knew the George Harrison story, it didn't mean anything. So I used the next logical thing was Out of Our Heads.
1: Well, that's a great title, (laughs) Out of Our Heads. It's true, and I can't imagine. I mean, your journey just went from one unbelievable story to the next. This book, you can't put it down. Each time you're reading it, you're like, wow, what's going to happen next? And even if you lived it and you knew this maybe was happening from your perspective on the inside, it's fantastic. It's just fantastic. Oh shucks. No, <laughs> seriously. Does that ever, like... Really resound in you? I lived this. Uh, well, I, I well, did
2: this. The thing that happened, is, it, first of all, it took five years to do the book over the course of time, and, the, and I did all the stuff myself. I had two ghostwriters they wanted to assign to me when I had a publisher, but I said no when the ghostwriter said, We'll take your words and we'll put them in parentheses. So I figured if I wanted to get the word out, because you got to understand, over 50 years, that's half a century, people have gone on the assumptions that they know everything about what actually happened. There, There's hundreds of books. Books out. Half of them are lies and made-up stories. But there's every person that's a Rolling Stones fan or Beatles fan think they've heard everything. But the truth is I never talked about Altamont because I never paid attention to lawyers. I mean, lawyers, yeah, right. Lawyers and reporters, they all lie. And also a reporter, when he goes in to do the story, it's his imp- his interpretation of your story. And these weren't actually what happened. I had the facts. So that's why I put in the proof of truth with the book. So I said, wait a second, forget about whether I said it. whether my memory's wrong, here's what actually happened. Here's the documentation, like when they said that we overcharged for tickets with the Stones. I bring in the newspaper articles showing they were $7.50 in Oakland. That's not overcharging. So anyhow, I, I could rattle out about this all the time. I love the book, and I'm glad to look at it and see that it's true.
1: <laughs> I think it's fantastic. But what is amazing is half the book is All of that documentation, did you know enough at the time to save all that? Did you think one day I'm saving this, or did it just happen to be in the accountant file that you you had along the way, because well, it is proof of truth.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I never, I didn't think about it because I don't pay attention to stuff like that. Luckily, it was just in storage. But when I got ready, I said at one point I got sick of all of the different stories and another book came out saying it was the absolute truth of Altamont and it was all made up. And so, so I just said, you know, I better get the truth out there before I die. You know, even though I didn't care what anybody else thought, I had lived it. So I turned around and then I decided to write it. But when I was writing it, I realized stories are just stories. You know, I can make up any kind of story. It doesn't mean it's true. So, And then also I realized I had one story I thought was an absolute fact. I had the story right. I had the location wrong, so I never trusted memory. So I decided to look for things that gave it. And in my storage were all the documents that all of a sudden gave me the timeline so I was able to tell a story. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it.
1: It's a fantastic Story. It's a fantastic truth. It is not just a story. It was lived and appreciated by many. As you went through this, and you went from tour to tour, and <laughs> the making of the movie, the chaos that in, that went on, were you aware that this was changing history at the time? When I
2: saw the first Stone shows in 65, with the way the kids all were and the excitement that was going on, at that time I felt that there was something strong. But remember, I'd seen all kinds of, you know, time changes, everything. But I did feel it with the Stones, and then when I saw the Beatles, I knew things had changed. So you don't realize that that you're part of history, but you realize something heavy-duty is coming out, especially when the streets are filled with people like they are now.
1: And what what did you think about the riots that ensued with all the concerts why were there so many riots
2: well, the the riots in 65 and 66 were the fans trying to get close to the boys. That's what I felt at that time. It was screaming girls and guys in suits and ties. But 69, it's when all of a sudden we now had, you know, the Vietnam War. We had all the things that were going to be going on. So it was more violence, and it was a little more frightening. But like in Altamont and all that, we had that violence around us all the time. And like anything else, you really never think. Remember, when you're young, you don't think you're going to be hurt. So we see all the violence, and it's scary for us second but we got away from it all usually we managed to run because of you <laughs> well yeah i <laughs> tried to, i tried to set up escape routes but look they, i gotta tell you for everything i did each one of them that i think i stayed close with them because they would have done the same thing it's they you know everybody was on everybody's side everybody had everybody's back
1: so and, you don't uh, think it was the music that was inciting people because people were alluding to that well it's the music it's you know it's
2: Well, when when Elvis came out, they said the rock and roll was going to destroy the world. They were probably right, but they were also, that was the big thing. They were burning. Rock and roll was the sin, was the devil's workplace. (laughs) So absolutely, yes, of course music did it. (laughs) But the music that everybody, no, it was, I think it was society was ready for a change. And the Beatles, I think, really brought it on because they were able to be the... You know, they segued into the parents. The, You know, the parents hated the Rolling Stones. Would you let your daughter or marry Rolling Stone? And yet they loved the Beatles, so it was easily perfect for the young kids to hate their parents' as idols. So it was like a weird little <laughs> mix there at the time. You had the violent ones able to... I hate the Beatles, and the Beatles people like, all, all you need is love.
1: <laughs> that's right, that's right. And, and boy, do we need that again right now. You know that... The Stones trusted you implicitly, and you talk about this throughout the book, and by example, not necessarily by word, but by example of what they chose to do and how they drew you back in no matter what. Did you feel that also from the Beatles? Did the Beatles have that same, besides maybe Paul...
2: No, I wasn't as close with the Beatles at the time. When I had left, they remember they were back in the UK going through all their stuff. And when I came back to the States, I was no longer enjoying what I was doing. I was watching the Beatles break up. The Stones were really upset with my uncle. He'd screwed everybody over. There was litigation on all the things. And plus, because I was a relative, all the other people in the office, you know, nepotism were always on my case. So it wasn't a pleasant place, and my uncle noticed it. And basically, from offering me, well, if you want to save your money and then leave, that's cool. It went to, you, you either stay now or leave, a, you know, you either stay until my birthday or you leave now. And I got up and walked out, so I, I had no contact. I didn't know what the Beatles or the Stones thought about me leaving at the time or whether they cared.
1: You're were, you were like this anomaly in the moment. You did this job. You took them from point A to point B against all odds. And then you came out the winning side almost every single time. (laughs) It's amazing.
2: I don't know if it's a winning side. It's just like, you know, you just keep going, keep on moving. As they always say, keep on moving. You're
1: very humble, but you you made it work for them, and you got them their money, and you kept it straight somehow, (laughs) despite all the craziness at the concerts. But on that note, we have more with Ronnie Schneider right here on Making Life Brighter Radio. We'll be right back after a quick break.
3: Have you seen Winifred's healing jewelry? See what collectors and celebrities have been adoring for decades. Designs by Winifred is fine jewelry with meaning based on the energetic healing property of natural semi-precious gemstones. Whether you prefer a custom design or wish to choose something special from her handcrafted line of jewelry, all of Winifred's designs are tuned in a crystal quartz tuning bowl to the word love. Blessed stones by masters and even John of God. These healing pieces have been coveted by happy customers for years, With a fine eye for energy and aesthetic, Winifred brings to life the beauty within each stone and its unique healing properties. Enjoy more energy with Brazilian citrine. Protect yourself from EMFs and rebalance with tourmalines. Break unwanted patterns with beautiful appetite. Choose from a wide variety of gemstones and their healing properties. Designs by Winifred is fine jewelry with meaning. Follow on Facebook at Designs by Winifred or email at info at designsbywinifred.com. gifts to help those in need with physical, spiritual, and emotional ailments or trauma. Individuals and families may book private sessions in person or via Skype worldwide. Go to MakingLifeBrighter.com for more information. Enjoy Winifred's monthly articles with upwards of 30,000 fans. To buy music and subscribe to her Voice America radio show, visit iTunes worldwide. Follow along on Facebook at Making Life Brighter for her latest humanitarian effort to help move elephants in South America to a free roam
0: Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions or comments, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. That's radio at MakingLifeBrighter.com. And now, back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams.
1: And we're back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams. And today we have special guest, Mr. Ronnie Snyder, and he is here. He was the accountant for the Rolling Stones and the Beatles in the day, and he was the mastermind behind helping them sort it out and keep it straight. <laughs> he has a new book out called Out of Our Heads, The Rolling Stones, The Beatles, and Me with Proof of Truth. So tell us about that title. How, how exactly did you land on that versus any other title?
2: Well, For about a year, I went along with my sharing my grains of sand, and then I started picking titles from all the different album titles. I originally had Let It Bleed, but then I told Ethan Russell he could use it for his book. Even though I, I you know, the typical ones that everybody always thinks of with the Stones, you know, Satisfaction Street, all kinds of things and then all of a sudden I realized the tour that I went on with them in 1965 was the Out of Our Heads tour was the first big one that they did so I said, you know, based on everything that dude, Out of Our Heads could be based like, you know, out of our thought minds, out of their voices if my mind's coming accounting, theirs is music so that's why I liked it and then actually a publicist said Proof of Truth when I was putting up all the documents so I can't take credit for that <laughs> but I didn't like it originally. I thought it was tacky, but it made a lot of sense, of course, like everything else.
1: I love the picture of it, too. The picture is uh, Mick Jagger on the front, and Ronnie's in the background with Keith, and Keith is giving him receipts uh, to keep it straight. And it looks like there's money being exchanged. You have something in your mouth, but it's, it's receipts, correct?
2: No, money in my mouth. I always put my cash where my mouth is. <laughs> and I did that in that shot and that was when I you know the thing I always appreciate about Keith and making all the guys was that they would sign receipts in the weirdest place I, you know I'd say I want to make sure you know so they'd give me a piece of paper and there we were at the bottom of Circus Circus we had just gone off the plane and I, we. this picture was never for years I never knew about this picture for 10 some 15 years and then Ethan said one day he was going through his book, and he saw that shot, the shot of me there, and he said, oh, that's a great little shot, and he sent it to me, gave it to my daughter originally, and then sent it to me, And when I was working on the book, I said, somebody said, you know, that says it better than anything, money in your mouth, getting receipts from the boys, (laughs) and Mick with a big smile on his face after getting cash from me, obviously.
1: Obviously, it's a great, great book cover. So for all of you out there that want to get a copy of this, where can they get it again?
2: It's online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and you can order it through your bookstore. They can get it themselves. And it's also in L.A. uh, at the Diesel Bookstore and BookSoup.
1: And it's by Ronnie Schneider, Out of Our Heads, The Rolling Stones, The Beatles, and Me, with Proof of Truth. And on the second half of the book is all of his receipts, letters, and everything in kind that goes along with the accounting that this book is about. And this is not just an accountant's story. This is, let me tell you, a play-by-play of the tours, of the deals that went down and he salvaged. Tell us about some of those deals.
2: Well... The, the deals. With, the main deal was the fact of the '69 tour. That was the most thing that happened. Is the I had left ABCO and I was out on my own. And a couple of weeks after being gone, I got a phone call and it was Mick at two in the morning saying, "Listen, we want you to do the tour." And I was like, I've already left Abco. And he said, no, no, we know. And I just, then I said to him, look, I need you to get my uncle's approval because I didn't want to have five, that didn't help at all. But he said, okay, we'll take care of it. Don't worry. And then the next day my uncle called screaming. But the bottom line was I had the tour and then I had to organize it. And the interesting thing about that was the Stones didn't have any money because my uncle had frozen it. And I didn't have any money. I was 10,000 in a hole. I had a baby coming. My my son was going to be born in August. So all this stuff was happening at the same time and the Stones were just acting well here's what we want to do we're going to make this our wrong thing and we were going to basically stage the concert tour the way they wanted it to be done it was all packaged through them and so the end result was it was a lot of story as the book is but it was the William Morris came to me and then I borrowed money from them <laughs> and uh, you know, like, no,
1: tell them how know. you borrowed the money from
2: them that's the story that's an yeah. amazing story and, and Steve uh, Lieber and David Krebs were agents that came to me and I said well look you guys can have the tour as long, but I need money because I gotta pay for the airport you know air f- tickets to get them men and all that so I met with uh, the head of William Morris at the time Nat Lefkowitz is the accounting division EA accounting and, and he said look he said uh, and he gave me a check for $15,000 and he gave me a stack of papers to sign away my life for which didn't matter cuz I had no money. So I took the 15,000 and at that time I was thinking yeah any you know that that'll get them into the states that was the TWA bill to fly the stones in. So I knew I could get them in at least in that point. But then he also said here's the contract we're going to have for the tours do me a favor and just authorize and give it to legal. So I looked at the contract, and it said pay, make the check payable to William Morris Agency. So I drew a line through that and said make the check payable to Stone Promotions. Hell, we're doing the work. Pay us. So I wrote that out on the contract and gave that to their legal department. And then a few days later, I got a call from Nat. Could you come in? Good news. Come into the office. I went into the office, and he says, well... We, good news, the tour's going great and we got these checks in, you know, for $150,000, but, you know, there's, you're going to have to endorse them over to us as a third-party check because they're made out to your company. You know, And I just said, oh, let me see. And I took the checks, looked at them, and sure enough, they were made out to my company. And I tucked them into my suit jacket and said, thank you. <laughs> and he started, Well my guy, again. But the end result those we needed the money more than I cared about him crying about it. So the end result is he turned around and just said, if you don't play those first three or four dates, you know, we're all out of business. We'll be sued. But we did play the dates. But we also got the money to do the tour. So I always figured that was the deal. That was one of the first deals I did to get the deal done, was get money out of William Morris.
1: I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. Now, you know, I, I hail from upstate New York between Rochester and Syracuse in a little town called Auburn, and uh, you, you had many experiences both in Syracuse and in Rochester on these tours. Tell us a little bit about some of these hairy, hairy things you got into.
2: Well, I, you trying to remember with Syracuse that the flag that the, the, yeah, the, see that was the one that when I was doing <laughs> my story, I was always positive this story took place in Dallas. I'll tell you right now, I was sure this was Dallas because the the sheriffs had cowboy hats, but that was the way they were. So, what can I tell you? But we turned around, we we did the date. And at the end of the show, Brian Jones wrapped a flag around his shoulders that was standing up by this, you know, in the hall we were playing. And we walked off. And as they said, We're going to take you under a tunnel under the stadium. And they're going to take us out this back exit so there wouldn't be crowds out rioting when we came out of the stadium. So when we went out to run, all of a sudden, we realized Brian wasn't there, and we turned around, and what happened was the cops had grabbed Brian, and they were interrogating him because he wrapped the flag around. First of all, he's a Brit. He doesn't know. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he turned around, and you know he had to make But that was the big thing, was working getting him out of there. They finally let him go. They realized there was nothing evil intended. But that was the wild things we had there. Almost every date we had through all of every date we had those days. And then the money. Wild,
1: you you, know? you were carrying around thirty grand at a time in, in your briefcase. I had a
2: horrible <laughs> little cardboard briefcase, or have to carry the cash because those days it wasn't like you had an ATM. You didn't have, you know, you had bankers' hours. That's the only thing you had in those you days. You had backroom
1: <laughs> deals. of here's the cash for the show, and then you have to go put it in the bank, but you don't have time to get to the bank. Right. So uh, you're you're uh, you're doing the diamonds in the lunch bag in New York City. Kind well, of thing. which is <laughs> well,
2: we can segue to the '69 tour, which was one of the nicest moments. Ike and Tina Turner. They, people bad rap Ike. I happen to say I've got a soft spot by, for Ike because. when when we were playing the date in San Francisco, the cops came in and said that there was a, they were gonna try and rob the money from me. They knew I had money in a briefcase, and first thing the cops did was handcuff me to the briefcase, which I immediately said, no way, because they were like, you're wait, within a second, I said, no, no, I don't care if they take the money, they're not taking my hand. So the end result is, well, we're going to have to drive you around. But the end result was, while we were doing the show, Ike called me and said, come on over here. And I went over to Ike. He said, listen, if the, oh, by the way, the people trying to get the money were the, uh, it was the... Uh, Black
1: Panthers. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got to watch
2: out whether you're saying a TV show or a movie now. I gotta yeah, yeah, right. No, no, the Black <laughs> Panthers in the
1: day, the original yeah. ones. <laughs> yeah, the original Black Panthers
2: were supposedly going to rob me of the money that we had at the time. And they were going to use the money for guns and whatever. That was what the cops were telling us. And Ike called me over, and he said, Ron, you know, if anything happens with the Panthers, get over to me he right away. And he pulls me into the dressing room, and he opens up his jacket pocket, and he had 45, a 45 holster in his shoulder. <laughs> and it's, oh, okay, Mike. He said, no, no, you stay with me and the boys. We're always packing. You'll be okay. No Black Panthers <laughs> will mess with you with us. So I always liked Ike for that.
1: And then you got escorted from one police car to the next to the next to make it to the airport. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. So you had the, the you had to elude the... You yeah, know, after,
2: after the show, they said, okay, you're going with us, we want it. And they really took me in different cars and zipped over and stopped. It was really like you always see in the movies, you know, between one car to another car and then out and finally took me to the airport. It was like, it was a lot of, you know, I, I appreciated them looking out for my safety and it was very interesting. But of course, I can laugh about it now, but of course, if the, the Black Panthers were after me, I wouldn't have been that happy. I really liked that the, these guys helped me out. Oh my God,
1: this is like the Wild West relived only modern style.
2: Right? Well, the modern <laughs> West would be at the end of the 65 tour when Keith Richards says to me and uh, Garrett Mankowitz, the photographer of the 65 tour, you want to go overnight camping with me and horseback riding in Scottsdale, Arizona? You know, me, the little accountant guy and the little photographer guy with Keith Richards guy, yeah, that Keith Richards said, come on, let's go uh, horseback riding and overnighting. And we said, sure, boy, we did. And that was overnight. It was the most amazing thing with guns and rifles and bobcats and and bacon and all. It was really fun. But the funnier part was going to the airport in Phoenix and walking in covered with dust and cactus hair, you know, (laughs) cactus needles, and walking in with Winchester rifles. No offense, America. Walking in with the Winchester rifles into Phoenix Airport, and the guy's saying, well, you know, you can't check those, but we'll just leave them for you outside the pilot's cabin. And oh they were resting against the door. Those days are gone. Yeah, those days are
1: definitely way gone. My goodness, wow. Well, you know, that was the day when you didn't really expect people to do things like they do today. And so what seemed so horrible and horrific then kind of pales by comparison to today and what we're seeing today do you still talk to the boys? Are you still
2: friends? No, they're on the road traveling all over the world. The last person I talked to was Charlie, who I always loved, the sweetest guy in the world, married to the same woman for eight million years, I think.
1: Ah, that's sweet. That's sweet. You know, they put out a book recently. My friend, uh, Guy Webster, whom I also did an interview with, Guy was one of the photographers during all that time. And he put out a book called Big Shots. And he, I was there to talk to him about that book, and the Stones had sent that big coffee table book that they made not too long ago. It's like half the size of this table, and you have to open yeah, so it up. I, you know, that,
2: two
1: of my, that, my
2: <laughs> photographers were in it. Were they? <laughs> yeah. 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 Ethan and Garrett were two of the photographers in the book, because uh-huh. yeah, they did the 65 and 69 tours.
1: It's just incredible. So, as you spent time with them, how did you take them? How were they to you? Because, you know, you see them on stage and they're these gods and they're these rock gods. But behind the scenes, how were they with you?
2: I never realized a god could have to go to the bathroom, so I never considered that (laughs) gods. Gods don't go in the bathroom, but uh, with me it was a case of, like any group of guys, we were all the same age. And I had a really twisted sense of humor. And I think humor gets you through with all of them. So, you know, here I was supposed to be the straight accountant, yet also I smoked dope and I partied. So that got along with them. And, And in those days, it's one thing I've never mentioned or don't talk about, but there was a difference. If you were somebody who they knew smoked or, you know, did marijuana or did anything, at least they knew you were enlightened enough to understand where their heads were at as opposed to somebody who said something was bad without even knowing what it was. So, okay, put that aside now. We all got along in the sense like any group of guys, you know, except I realize now I thought they were friendly with me. I think they were friendly with me because I'm the one that paid the bills because I had the cash on me. But the reality is they would, you know, Mick and Keith would pick on Brian and Brian would... We often decide to go off and do things. There'd be times when Bill would say, "Okay, come with me, but don't tell Keith." It was like any dynamic of guys that you could imagine. And it was the same thing with the Beatles. When I was with the Beatles, it would be basically John talking. I mean, George actually talking to me more so, and I talk a little bit to Ringo. And John, I wouldn't talk to pa- Paul, though. But with the Stones, I talked to all of them. And what happens is guys are you know, it's just regular people. Guys are guys. Everybody goes yeah. through their usual. Look, I mean, to me, as a guy, being a guy, here's a young guy with Mick. The thing that, first thing that Mick ever said to me that ever surprised me was when he asked whether he thought I should marry one of the Shrimptons when he was, de- you know, I was like, do you think I should? I was like, what do you ask? That was like... <laughs> Darling, <laughs> Is I this
1: an accounting question?
2: Well, I, I just told him, don't marry her in California at the time. That was, you know, it's, you know the law was such that. It and was what did just, you say? I just said, whatever you do, <laughs> don't marry her in California or the states. And he followed that advice, I think, afterwards, even though, but they didn't get married at the time. We were all too young.
1: Well, they counted on you. They, it's clear that they trusted you and uh, they felt that you could handle the situations. And you did, against all odds. What was one of the situations you really questioned the most that somehow you got out of?
2: Well, no, I mean, it, it, the situations at first I think got us going when I first met was like, once again, we're all the same age. We all relate to things separately. They realized I thought some of the stuff was ridiculous. They did. We realized how ridiculous the press was. So on those basis, we re- understood. But then, you know, there's so much detail. Like, you know, all of a sudden I can think about Brian saying, "Ronnie, you help me, please. Somebody gave me acid. By the way, every rock star I worked with who had acid usually said somebody gave it to them. They didn't realize. It was like right, usually right. I didn't realize they to me. <laughs> like yeah,
1: the so. airplane, the airplane situation. When you, what happened to you? You got you input something. Oh yeah, and you no, were really was, sick.
2: Yeah, that was uh, yeah. gee, Luckily, time has passed. We were doing the European tour in 1970, and all of a sudden, we were in one of the. I remember which town and. The cops and the people had a way of, like, to surprise us sometimes when we would come in. They would all of a sudden take the baggage off to the side and make a big deal with dogs of inspecting the luggage. And this night, I remember we came in, getting ready to leave, and they took us up into this big room, and the bags were at the end of the room with cops and dogs, and then they started walking to us. And Keith all of a sudden came over to me and said, Ron, Ron, get rid of this. And he slid this, he slid a round ball into my hand. I popped it into my mouth wondering why he didn't do it. And it turned out to be hash and opium. (laughs) And I was on a trip and gone for a day.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, on that note, we'll be right back with more. Ronnie Schneider right here on Making Life Brighter Radio.
3: Have you seen Winifred's healing jewelry? See what collectors and celebrities have been adoring for decades. Designs by Winifred is fine jewelry with meaning based on the energetic healing property of natural semi-precious gemstones. Whether you prefer a custom design or wish to choose something special from her handcrafted line of jewelry, all of Winifred's designs are tuned in a crystal quartz tuning bowl to the word love. Blessed stones by masters and even John of God, these healing pieces have been coveted by happy customers for years. With a fine eye for energy and aesthetic, Winifred brings to life the beauty within each stone and its unique healing properties. Enjoy more energy with Brazilian citrine. Protect yourself from EMFs and rebalance with tourmalines. Break unwanted patterns with beautiful appetite. Choose from a wide variety of gemstones and their healing properties. Designs by Winifred is fine jewelry with meaning. Follow on Facebook at Designs by Winifred or email at info at designsbywinifred.com. To help those in need with physical, spiritual, and emotional ailments or trauma. Individuals and families may book private sessions in person or via Skype worldwide. Go to MakingLifeBrighter.com for more information. Enjoy Winifred's monthly articles with upwards of 30,000 fans. To buy music and subscribe to her Voice America radio show, visit iTunes worldwide. Follow along on Facebook at Making Life Brighter for her latest humanitarian effort to help move elephants in South America to a free roam sanctuary.
0: Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions, comments, or would like to make an appointment with medical intuitive Winifred Adams, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook at Making Life Brighter, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. Now back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. We're back today with
1: special guest Ronnie Schneider, and he's the author of Out of Our Heads, The Rolling Stones, The Beatles, and Me, with Proof of Truth. And uh, he was just sharing with us his... uh, very spontaneous trip that he took <laughs> uh, saving the guys yet again at the airport in one of their one of their tours tell us a little bit about the personalities of these these fellows that you worked with that are superstars
2: yeah. Well, when I first met him, they stayed consistent in the sense that Mick was always more of a cerebral guy who really, you know, he did the London School of Economics. He still has the first Pence he ever made, I believe. But, you know, then you have Keith, who's just so passionate and emotional about his music. I mean, Keith was, you know, that was it. From the moment I met him, it was all music all the time, and that's what he related to more so than anything. Then I would go to Charlie. Charlie Watts was like a guy who was like, you knew that he would be judging you. <laughs> he was like, if you're doing things, make sure you do it right. You don't screw up because he's with you because you're working. You better work well. I always liked Charlie like that, straightforward. And Bill, Bill was smart, older than all of us, always got tormented because he was the old guy with a small bladder. And, <laughs> but I love Bill. Bill was very close to me. We did a lot of things together. And like I said, usually he would either be going out buying antiques or looking for women. I mean, he was his fr- he was going to do a book on his first group of women on his first tour, I believe. He kept the <laughs> diary of it that oh, had the Oh no! It. So Bill, but meanwhile, this was we're now talking about the you know the, the free love and all that summer of love. This was the time you understand for us ugly skinny guys or ugly fat guys. This was a chance we finally got, so it was blooming. So anyhow, so that was Bill. And Brian, Brian was like an orchid Or like one of those rare flowers Is the way I can describe it He was like very He was ephemeral in the sense that He was an artist I, I love Brian when he would play his, The uh, different you know, instruments he would play That he would bring to the, you know, to the stage He was great and he was very creative Unfortunately the drugs got him at the end And also his physical weakness with You know asthma and all that But I always liked Brian. We got along well. Brian was one who would be one of those, please Ronnie, look out for me, take care, you know, I got dosed today. He was one of those, but he was also somebody that I, you know, when he got busted for pot, he cried. So he was a close, you know, sensitive guy.
1: What were the dynamics among them? Who who was closer with whom and and how did they write together? How did they work together? How did they play together? What
2: was their... Well, when I'd come in originally, Brian was the original founder of the group. And Brian was great and all this, but... Mick and Keith paired off and the chemistry between the doom and the creativity between the two of them overshadowed what Brian brought and it became basically Mick and Keith. And so that was the dynamic. But you have that in all kinds of groups. You know, you had John and Paul. And what happens in all those groups is you're going to have a couple of people that are creative like uh, like a Bill Wyman who wanted to do his own stuff on their albums and like George Harrison who wanted to do his own stuff. And there's always that little battle that goes on and depending on how sensitive everybody is at that point in time those get stronger battles at you know as it is but they still all love each other like I said right now if John and George were still I have no doubt they'd be on the, out right now they'd be playing for the kids out there on the street
1: yeah yeah for the love of music
2: Absolutely, they all loved the music, they were, you know, no matter what could be said. Like I said, I watched all these guys, and the one thing that I can say is, each one of them brought something to all those songs. Even though two guys got credit on the songs, every one of those groups brought things to that music, every one of the individuals.
1: That's a beautiful way to put that. You know, you were a pulse within that. You actually directed the pulse to some degree. Let's say they brought the musical element, you brought the element that allowed it to be heard. Technically, because without you doing the things that you did, it may not have gone down the same way. You ever consider that?
2: I don't do any of that. The way it is is. The way it happened happened. All that other stuff doesn't mean anything. You can theorize, you can you know, maybe in the other parallel universe it went this other way, but here this is what happened. (laughs) And that's the way it is.
1: You were you were the one that directed that show, however, because these deals were put together on account of your insight and like you laid out in the book, there are certain deals that we're not gonna benefit them, and you corrected that in a very creative way.
2: Oh yeah. Well, what happens is before those, t- when they wanted to do this tour, and the way they described it, the things, the events took over. Number one, because on my calendar, I and I had done all these other tours, I knew what the promoters could make. I knew we were also scaling the house, so I knew all the numbers that were involved with it. So instead of waiting on, I found out that if I wait on the kindness of other people to give me money, it never happens for some reason. <laughs> you know, so you have to basically. I like. I found out. Give me the control and let me be the good guy as opposed to me. Tra- you, So I turned around and I structured the deals where basically the promoters would get 10%. So reality, it forced me to say the Stones get 60 or 70% of gross. You know, those deals hadn't been done. And I just said, look, and not only that, I want half the money up front because I needed that money to do the tour. So I made them guarantee half the promoters bitched and moaned as we say but they turned around and they knew they were going to make money you know which is a better way to be than losing money going into a the deal they had the stones they were making and that's the way it turned out everybody made their little bit and one guy that almost lost money i made sure he made it frank fields in chicago actually
1: so, so you're you're honorable to those people Even though it had to be twisting the arms sometimes. Oh, it was
2: definitely twisting the arms. They definitely weren't used to paying 70%. They paid (laughs) 10 grand. They weren't used to any of that stuff or 60%. But the end result was it was fair, because, you know, and plus the Stones needed money and they were the guys bringing everybody in. You know, it was the music. and, And just to give one other thing, you know, when it says I controlled, I did, the Stones controlled all that in the sense that. When we were doing Madison Square Garden, we didn't have a deal originally when they were getting ready to go on. It was during the intermission. And it wasn't until I managed to get the executives from William William Morris and the Madison Square Garden up there. But meanwhile, while I was stalling the play, I went to the Stones and said, look, do me a favor, guys. We don't have a deal here. I've got to have leverage. You just stay in the dressing room until I say you can come out. And they basically said, no, screw you. (laughs) It was was like, they'll go out when they're winning. I had nothing to do with their music or their timing or anything. I was just lucky enough that I made the deal before they came out.
1: That's dumb luck in that one because that was a giant show. Giant. Tell us the impact of that show.
2: Well, the Madison Square Garden show was more important than anything else as it worked out to be, because right before the Madison Square Garden deal, I made the deal with the Mazels to film four of the songs in the concert. So Madison Square Garden not only became Madison Square Garden, it also became Gimme Shelter. And it became that film, and the way that happened was, like I said, the Stones were only going to be filming four songs. So any of the books you all read that said that we had a film deal before the concert started. They lied to you. There was no film deal. There still wasn't a film deal. When we filmed those four songs, that was it. That was for promoting the album in Europe when we did the European tour. We turned around, and from there, they went basically did West Palm Beach and then went to Muscle Shoals to record. We didn't get out to San Francisco. To th- they didn't get out the day before. I got out two days before. So the result was Madison Square Garden helped create Give Me Shelter, and that speaks for itself as a statement on society, history, and everything else. <laughs> the first reality show you could ever see. There's reality TV at its best, and it had a murder. Uh,
1: oh, yeah, let's talk about that. You didn't expect what was about to happen out there. Tell us a little bit yeah. about what the boys thought going into that. And I say the boys lovingly. The Rolling Stones mm-hmm. went into that. They are. I say that because everyone likes to claim the boys are ours. That's what makes a star, right? Everyone thinks they're a little bit part of that puzzle somehow. That's funny. I,
2: I never heard that. I always call them the boys because that's how <laughs> I you? always thought them. Yeah, we were all, hey, boy, the boys. I always referred to them as the boys. Mm-hmm. You know, by the way, one other point I want to make to you is when they went up on that stage, they became the Rolling Stones. When they came off that stage, they were the boys. You know, it was like individuals. The Rolling Stones was a job when they went up there. So well, people
1: carry a piece of that with them, which makes it, it endears them to each individual. It inspires them. So you were inspired by them, obviously, and you were inspired by what they did in front of people and what took place. But tell us about what happened up in San Francisco. Where where were you in that, and how oh, did it come to, oh, yeah. come to pass?
2: Okay, so the, the, because of lies, we were forced into doing a free concert, which everybody said was a free concert. Not a Rolling Stones concert, free concert. Other acts were going to be there. So I turned around, and the... Uh oh. Oh yeah, the, the Stones said that they would go do this concert and they would play for free. So that's all that happened there. We were gonna go out there. Uh, all the West Coast people, the Grateful Dead people were organizing this event because of the lies, but they all they all wanted to do something like Woodstock, and they felt this was their and chance. And what's the lie? What's the the lie? lie was that the Stones were overcharging people and screwing over the fans. They, they, these guys gave everything to their fans and didn't have people in the back and the stage. I mean, they did a lot, so I resented that. And we also scaled the houses, like I said, so that nobody could overcharge. The promoters would have charged whatever they could have done. We kept control on it. So when these guys come out in the press, and lie about us overcharging. That got me pissed. But nobody listened to me. I'm the short little guy. So when I told the Stones we weren't overcharging, already the, you know, the momentum, social media had taken over, and so they felt they had to do this free concert. So the West Coast guys are organizing it. I get a call after the Stones are back, and you know after they're in uh, Muscle Shoals, I get a call saying, the deal fell through for the concert. We need another, well, we've got a new venue at Sears Point Raceway. The one at Golden Gate Park hasn't worked out come on out here, we need you to sign this deal with Sears Point Raceway, which is owned by Filmways. I fly out to San Francisco, and I sit down with Dick St. John of Filmways, and he starts out telling me this free concert's gonna basically cost me $300,000, 100,000 for cleaning, 100,000. He had all kinds of reasons for everything why it was gonna cost me all this money. Plus he wanted a film they had the rights to the film. Now, we had no film deal, and I didn't own any film rights either. There was no film being talked about, so I couldn't give them rights. To it. Anyhow, the deal blew up. I was happy. I didn't want a free concert. No offense, people, <laughs> but I thought it was unfair. Anyhow, the, our, our guy says, why don't we sue uh, Dick St. John because they're costing us money because of all the things that happened for the tour. So, any anyway, result, as I go, somebody recommends Belli, Melvin Belli, I go into Belli's office. He charges me ten grand, and he's going to bring Dick St. James so we could sue him for ten million. Meanwhile, Belli's a huckster, and he's trying to make this whole thing happen. He's got TV cameras in the studio, all this. So they turn around and find this guy uh, at, at another place, another racetrack in Altamont. Dick Clark's Dick Clark right? Dick Carter, yeah. Dick Clark's event, right? Dick Carter's speedway. And Dick Carter is willing to do the event. Now here's the important part that people don't pay attention to or know about. At the moment when it was finally decided to go forward, Dick Carter needed somebody to sign on the event as the promoter. Who promoted the, the free concert? Do you ask anybody? They have no idea, because the reality is John James, the con man, John James signed in his Young American End as the promoters of the event. The Rolling Stones were just one of the free acts. So that's how all that started. So John signed for it. it and It wasn't John, even his name. Yeah, no, John, <laughs> was with, yeah, who knows? He, was, he nearly got me killed. I mean, that, that guy was horrible. But, you know, such is life. <laughs> or almost death. Luckily, I had him thrown out of a window. Anyhow, um, so the Stones, you know, so we ended up having to do this concert. And the night before, I went out with Keith and Mick and uh, security and Stanley Booth. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was magic. A calm, peaceful night. Everything's going along beautiful. It's cold. The hammering, putting up the things, little fires around there. People gathering, drinking wine, smoking pot. And we walked around, it was magical, and Keith said, look, I'm going to stay. You know, it's really nice, I'm staying. And Mick and I went back. So the next day, we're flying in, and we're going to go back as it is. Bill was shopping, and it was just Charlie and I and Mick flying back on the chopper, Mick Taylor. And we get out to Altamont and get off the helicopter, and as I'm walking with Mick, and we're guided by a security guard, Mick gets punched in the face. And then they grabbed the guy, and he is We're led backstage to this trailer with all these Hell's Angels. And before, in case our time runs out, the Rolling Stones never hired the Hells Angels. You can't hire the Hells Angels. Listen to them, they'll tell you the same thing. Anyhow, they were there, though, because they guard the generators, which they've been doing all those years for the Grateful Dead. They guard the generators, take care of the electricity. That's why they were there. We didn't hire them, and they weren't the guys beating people up. It was the initiates who wanted to be Hells Angels. Okay, enough of the excuses. So we had to do this fantastic free event, and that was it. And it was scary, and it felt like we were going to die, and the evil was in the air, and all those things that everybody says about it. If you were 100 feet further away from the event, you thought it was fantastic, and you loved it. I had friends that thought it was great because they listened to the music. Only if you're around the energy of the violence did you know what was going on. Up close
1: to the stage where the Hells Angels were guarding, supposedly guarding... Everything. Yeah. 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 But th- were they really guarding? I
2: mean, Oh yeah, no, they were and at one time it was scab because they had brought their motorcycles in front. We'd had a little short and fire in the speakers. And we had a fire in front of the desk and I mean in front of the stage and chips said bring the speakers up and the angels moved their Motorcycles in front and the crowds just knocked the motorcycles over and that was where it got hairy I saw the guy, poor guy got his motorcycle pushed over and had to push it up and get it out of there And yeah, so I saw why like, so some people were pissed
1: But that's kind of, you know, the whole concert has a bad rap in a way because of the person that got killed there and all that But it's a little bit of a risk in a place like that Woodstock was a risk, everything was a risk, right? I mean, a concert like that, how do you, how do, you do that without...
2: You have 300,000 people. You have a segment of society and humanity, and that's what's going to happen. You go to any bar in this country right now, and I guarantee, if, they, if somebody's got a gun, somebody will be shot. At, you know, you put 300,000 people together, somebody dies. It's more and dangerous. People than, died in all these other the other events. People have died. It's but.
1: more dangerous in our schools today, yeah. unfortunately. Well, not really. <laughs> so tell tell us a little bit. We just have a few minutes left. Tell us um, about how you one minute. Yep. So how do you, how is it you feel about when you look back on this? How is it?
2: I, I look back and have a big smile on my face and a moment of enjoyment and pride that I at least got Gimme Shelter done so at least people can see what things were like actually during those times and fantastic music too.
1: What, how special. The book is Out of Our Heads with Rolling Stones, the Beatles and Me with Proof of Truth by Ronnie Schneider and we'll have more on outtakes with Ronnie. You can go to makinglifebrighter.com to check that out. What makes your life brighter, Ronnie?
2: Uh, orange juice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Straight from the accountant. Orange juice, everybody. Thank you for listening. Go jolly. Go make somebody else's life brighter.
0: Thank you for listening to Making Life Brighter on the Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to join us every Thursday at 10 a.m. for information, inspiration, and education with leading experts in healing and consciousness. For more information and a complete show schedule, please visit us at MakingLifeBrighter.com. Making Life Brighter, successfully helping you feel better from the inside out. Go Jolly!
1: I always do.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.